Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trasilla from NHS Somerset, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Peter Bagshaw, GP and NHS Somerset uh, Mental Health Lead. And today we've got the title of Getting It Right, and we've got Sonia Sansom and Louise Atkinson to come and help us with that. Tell us about yourselves, please, and then let's let's work out what Getting It Right is all about. Hello, Andrew. My name is Sonia Sansom. I'm the Operational Manager for the Learning Disability Liaison Service at Musgrove Park, and we're part of Somerset Foundation Trust. Um, and I'm Louise Atkinson, and I'm one of the Learning Disability Liaison Nurses at Musgrove Park Hospital. And can I ask something really basic to begin with, please? A lot of people get confused between learning disability and learning difficulty. Can you explain the difference for us? Yes. Yeah, so, so a learning difficulty um, might be something that affects somebody's um, educational ability. Um, it might be something that affects their their learning in in more of an academic sense. Um, whereas a learning disability is much more um, global. So it would affect every aspect of somebody's life. Um, learning disabilities generally are diagnosed. Um, using uh, an assessment which looks at areas of social functioning. So it's based on on an IQ and um, an IQ of assessment um, historically of under 70 would have um, been a diagnosis for somebody with a learning disability. But it's slightly more holistic than that now. And it takes into account um, various different aspects of the person's life um, and their social functioning within their life. Um, so quite often, um, things like dyslexia, um, dyspraxia, they, they, they would be classed as perhaps a learning difficulty and not a learning disability. Thank you. That's really clear. So we're talking about learning disabilities today and often we'll abbreviate it to LD for convenience. Is that right? Yes, 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 that's right. Mm -hmm. OK, well, please tell us about your roles and what you do. So um, I'm not the expert in the team. That is Louise and her colleague, Bruce and Sarah. But my role is to support the team to ensure that it runs smoothly, that it's engaged with the hospital, that we're collecting data, we're looking at that we've got the right service provision in place, that sort of thing. But the real magic is done by our nurses. And it's about when someone comes into hospital, making sure that the reasonable adjustments that they need to ensure equal healthcare are in place, looking at improving health outcomes for that person and their family. Uh, and I'll hand over to Louise to maybe give you an example of someone's reasonable adjustments. Um, yeah, so we, we support um, any adult with a diagnosis of a learning disability to access the acute hospital. Um, so um, the person needs to be over the age of 18. Unfortunately, at the moment, we don't have a provision for children. Um, so we work with people over the age of 18, and that could be um, with uh, an acute admission. So if somebody's become acutely unwell and they've needed to come and be admitted to hospital, um, we also support outpatient 
outpatient appointments and we support planned admissions as well. So really we could be anywhere within the hospital from the maternity department uh, to the beacon centre to any anywhere really. Um, and what we look at is we look at our patients' individual needs around their learning disability. So whether that might be about communication needs um, and um, enabling understanding of their health conditions um, and of the treatment that's proposed. Um, it might be around um, assessing capacity and um, if necessary, following the correct legal processes around making best interest decisions if somebody lacks capacity. Um, it could be around making sure that uh, the acute hospital staff have the information that they need around that patient, around their likes and dislikes, things that might make their hospital stay or their, their hospital um, appointment easier. So um, an example of that might be that, that some people really struggle with waiting um, due to their impaired um, understanding. Um, they might find it very difficult to understand why they're being kept waiting. Obviously, waiting is quite a common thing in hospitals. Um, so we would try and liaise around reducing um, those waiting times in waiting areas. Um, so uh, got quite quite a, um, an interesting case example. Um, which illustrates reasonable adjustments. Um, there was a, a chap who came in for, he needed to come in for dental treatment uh, in the day surgery. And we do quite a lot of joined up work with the day surgery and the, the community dental team because a lot of our patients um, are unable to tolerate dental treatment without sedation or general anaesthetics. So they need to access the, the acute hospital for that. So we had a planned admission for dental work under general anaesthetic. Um, and this gentleman was very, very nervous of dentists and of hospitals. And we um, spoke to his mum, who was his primary carer, who was, was very doubtful as to whether we would even be able to get him in the building because he was so fearful. Um, however, he also really loved uh, Formula One and racing cars. So we developed a plan where... Um, we decided to set up uh, a, a kind of fake um, race involving a wheelchair. So we, we got him to the day surgery department um, into the car park just outside the, the rear entrance. Um, and obviously with a lot of planning and risk assessing, um, we had two wheelchairs present and he, he sat in one wheelchair um, and my colleague sat in the other wheelchair and they had um, a race, a wheelchair race. And um, it just completely engaged him, completely distracted him from the fact that he was in a hospital um, and that he, you know, he needed to go into the building. He had this race and it, it had been agreed in advance that obviously he would win, win the race. And his... Um, his celebration drink was was actually had his sedative in it. So he had a little drink and everyone said cheers and um, he drank his sedative that way. So, um, you know, we, we kind of had to think really, really sort of out of the box as to how we were going to get that gentleman in. But with those few relatively small adjustments, um, we managed to get him into the hospital without any stress. And he had his dental treatment and um he went home happy and without, you know, having any kind of harm caused. And I think it's brilliant that you use those inventive techniques to help people. 
That's fantastic. Can, can I just take you back? You mentioned um, uh, men, mental capacity act and capacity, and these are the phrases people might have heard of, but not be completely clear what they mean. Um, could you, could one of you give us the mental capacity act and best interests decisions in a nutshell? Well, in a nutshell. It's about making sure that that individual understands and has the capacity, so therefore the ability to agree to an intervention um, or treatment that is taking place, that they're able to weigh it up and make an appropriate decision accordingly. Now, capacity is decision specific as well. So just because someone might have the capacity to choose to have, I don't know, porridge like Andrew for breakfast, it doesn't mean they've got the capacity to be able to agree to an inventive treatment. Um so essentially, in a nutshell, it's a very complex subject. It's often misconceived and it, it, it requires hefty meetings at times to make sure we've got it right. But just because somebody has got a learning disability does not mean that they should not be part of those discussions. And that's part of what we do. We make sure that they're at the centre of any decisions that are being made. But it is important to look at the capacity and then we therefore act in their best interests. So we would we would quite often advise um, clinicians within the hospital. We we wouldn't carry out the capacity assessment ourselves, um, but we would assist with that if if needed and advise. Um, and there are there are three areas that the person um, needs to be sort of assessed on, and that's um, their ability to understand and weigh up the information that's given to them, um, their ability to retain that information. So you would be able to go back to them an hour or so later and say, remember that discussion that we had? Can you remember what we talked about? And thirdly, that they are able to um, communicate their their decision and their feelings by any means. So that, that doesn't necessarily need to be verbally. That can be non-verbally. It can be through facial expressions. It can be through, through um, different methods of communication, such as sign language or um, use of um, digital, digital communication aids and those sorts of things. So that would be the assessment that we would follow uh, to determine whether somebody had capacity or not. And I guess that's where the challenge is come in within the acute hospital setting because not all clinicians uh, or physicians are skilled in noticing those other ways of communication yes. like you are yeah. so that's where the LD liaison team are really helpful yeah. in the acute hospital setting fantastic and i've given 40 minute talks on the mental capacity act and you two have done it in four so that's that's really brilliant and the, the underlying assumption is that people have capacity unless we can show that they don't isn't it so we should always assume that people can take decisions for themselves is that right yes. yeah absolutely and and but, you know if people are found to have capacity that that they are able to make unwise decisions even if we we might disagree with them um, and also that they may have capacity to, if even if they don't have full capacity, that they might be able to contribute. So even if their their understanding isn't isn't full about an issue, that we would take into consideration their feelings about it. So if somebody was very adamant they didn't want an operation, but they didn't fully understand the consequences of not having the operation. We would we would definitely take into account, even if we felt it was in their best interest to have it, we would definitely take into account the fact that they were, you know, were really, really not very keen on the idea. So it's about a collaborative assessment, really, rather than 
one person making a decision. That's really interesting. And there's an, another thorny aspect about capacity, which I come across in my my work as a as a Section 12 doctor under the Mental Health Act sometimes, which is if somebody is in severe distress, severe emotional distress, actually they may have capacity impaired simply because of the nature of that severe distress. Yeah, absolutely. And we we, we definitely, you know, we will often advise that people's capacity may be impaired just by the fact that they're in hospital and they're in an acute hospital mm-hmm. bed. Um, you know, it might be that if they were in their own home and they weren't feeling unwell, then they would be able to um, give capacity or give, sorry, give consent, etc. Yes. So it's so great to hear that you're having identified somebody with needs that you're there as their advocate and to help reasonable adjustments be made around them. I've got a couple of questions that come across, come flow on from that. Do we accurately identify everybody who comes into hospital with a learning disability or might there be some that that haven't got the diagnosis already or it's it's not obvious and does that happen and how do you manage that um yes that happens quite frequently yeah so um we will we will frequently get referrals from from various places in the hospital um querying whether whether people have a learning disability um, and in our team we are able to access Rio which is the community um, recording system so where we all keep our, our notes about patients it's the patient recording system yeah. <clears throat> we're able to access that so we can we can look at those notes and establish whether the person has a diagnosis or not if they don't have a diagnosis obviously it doesn't mean that they don't have a learning disability so we quite frequently will come across um, families uh, within Somerset who have cared for their own son or daughter or brother or sister um, for their entire life. Um, and they do have a learning disability, but they've never had any help from services um, because that's just what families do. Um, and we can refer for an eligibility assessment. So that would be um, an assessment to determine whether they, the person has a learning disability or not. So it would be that that IQ assessment um, that, that we mentioned earlier. Um, however, if somebody is acutely unwell, that will affect whether they're able to have that assessment because obviously that might um, affect the way that they respond to to certain questions and tasks if they're if they're unwell. Um, so it is very complex. Um, we also quite frequently will will receive referrals for people who um, have a diagnosis or don't have a di- diagnosis of a learning disability, but they might have a learning difficulty. So um, it's about us kind of being able to pull apart that person's needs. And unfortunately, although we would love to be able to help in every situation, if somebody doesn't have a diagnosis um, at the moment, it's it's beyond our capacity and our, our remit to be able to support everybody. I'm really glad you mentioned that. And it's something I come across in, in my work as uh, LD lead. So if somebody thinks that they or a relative has learning disability, it's well worth getting that referral, isn't it? It unlocks uh, a lot of services. It unlocks that people make reasonable adjustments. And it also entitles them to an annual health check, which is really important. So can you tell us how, how people would go about doing that? 
So, um, yes, they, they would make a referral to the community learning disability team if they wanted um, an assessment of eligibility. So, um, the the community learning disability team, um, we work alongside, we're, we're a separate team from them um, based in the hospital and, and the community learning disability team work across the county of Somerset. Um, there are four different teams in uh, the different areas of the county um, and they provide um, a multidisciplinary approach to um, supporting people with learning disabilities and their health needs. So they have psychology, psychiatry, speech and language, occupational therapy, physio, nursing. Um, they have all sorts of clinicians. And if a referral was made to that team, um, they have a, they have a central point of access a single point of access email um it's the psychology department who normally pick up those um referrals for assessments um of eligibility interesting thank you very much um can i pick up on a separate question which is it's you've been helping us with specific support for identified people and you've got a team, um, that's yourself and, and colleagues, uh, Louise and Sonia. But what, what about the fact that there are several thousand employees in Musgrove? There are a thousand or more in Yeovil Hospital. There are many others throughout the community. What's the education of the general skill set so that we're all better about uh, uh, in dealing with people um, with learning difficulty, with learning disabilities. Um, and I can see Peter's got a comment on that. that he'd like can to I jump up. in to say that uh, we, are, we are going to be having mandatory Oliver McGowan training for anyone involved in LD care uh, that's been meant to be happening for a while and, and should be being rolled out soon. Uh, so so it will things will get better. But sorry, I, I interjected Sonia and Louise. Over, over to you. You're the experts. I was just about to say exactly the same thing, Peter. So uh, Sarah and Louise up until now have been doing regular training within the acute hospital. We do that in a formal way as well as ad hoc training, you know, there and then when, on a one-to-one -one basis. It has been a challenge because our team's really, really small. And But with the Olive McGowan, like you're saying, it is mandated and we are part of the um, Somerset-wide network around looking at how that's going to be rolled out. And I'm really pleased it's going to be involving people with learning disability in that facilitation, which is really crucial because working alongside and with people who are actually experiencing the challenge is so important. For example, we have someone called Lily, don't we? Yes. We've got a volunteer called Lily who works one day a week with us. And the difference she has made is just unmeasurable on, in lots of ways she is amazing she's a young woman with profound learning disability she's also deaf and um, she comes in on a Wednesday see this today and she'll go around the hospital and spend time with people who are inpatients that Sarah Louise or Ruth have identified and she'll spend time with them. And actually, I'm not sure if I told you about this before, which is what prompted today, actually. She picked up on um, someone in the hospital who wasn't drinking. And through just being Lily and asking the questions in the way that she did, she found out the reason that he wasn't drinking was because he liked Coke. So she went and bought Coke from the shop. 
he started drinking and it just brings another level so the Oliver McGowan training including people with learning disability is going to be so much richer than just us standing in front talking about what it is to have a learning disability what those difficulties are and how we can work together to change that um, if you're interested Louise can tell you a bit about the uh, we've got Lily's word of the week which is an amazing project Do you want to because we yeah. both feel really passionate about Lily's Word of the Week, so I'll let you talk about that. Yeah. So Lily, um, as Sonia said, she's um, she's deaf um, and she uses British Sign Language. So um, she has a, a personal assistant with her who comes to work with her and um, interprets and signs. Um, she also has um, a brilliant iPad, um, which has got all sorts of kind of communication aids on it, which she uses with our patients as well. Um, but one of the ideas we had when fairly soon after Lily had started um, volunteering with us was to try and use her expertise around signing um, to make it accessible for the staff in the hospital. So we know that um, people in the acute setting, they may have no knowledge of signing at all and they may lack confidence um, in uh, being able to communicate people with a learn to communicate with people with a learning disability. Sometimes it's just uh, it, it seems like too much of a difficult task and people feel that they don't have the confidence to know which way to approach it. So we decided to do a series of videos with Lily. Um, and we've called it Lily's Word of the Week. So uh, Lily and I have done a series of 52 different signs um, which are relevant to care within the hospital. Um, so it's it's things like pain, ill, vomit. Um, it's things like hello, goodbye, my name is. Um, it's things like operation, um, wheelchair, stand up lots of different um, kind of commonly used and commonly needed phrases that you might come across in the hospital. And we've done this series of videos, um, which has been launched uh, on our intranet, um, but also is available on YouTube. Um, so if you if you Google YouTube Somerset Foundation Trust, or if you Google um, or if you went onto YouTube and searched Somerset Foundation Trust, then Lily's videos will, will all come up. Um, and it's just a fantastic resource. Um, we also want to create a large poster to go in all the clinical areas in the hospital, which will have all the different words and a QR code for each different word. And then the, the staff who are working in the hospital, if they think if they if they're working with a patient who's got a learning disability and who who would benefit from using signing, um, and they're not sure of a particular word, they can scan a QR code that's on the poster and be taken to a video of that sign. Um, so that would be Lily signing how to say, "Are you in pain?" Um, so yeah, we're really really excited about that project, and she just brings something to it that she's just got this incredible energy and smile um and yeah expertise around how it might feel to be a patient in hospital with a learning disability and also around communication needs that's absolutely fascinating thank you and i know excuse my i'm going to betray my ignorance at this point so excuse it but um 
the signing it would it, would it be macatone or makatone or would it be british sign language or is it is it something that's new to um somerset yeah. no so so lily uses british sign language but when we were talking about the project we um explained to her that the majority of our patients would use Makaton, um, which is the, the kind of recognised um, signing for people with learning disabilities. So Lily actually adapted her own signing for the videos. Um, so that was that was brilliant because she actually she taught me um, some British Sign Language. We taught her some Makaton um, and yeah, we've just kind of all kind of aided each other's communication, really, which is brilliant. It's amazing. It's really amazing. And I've been, uh, so I managed two other teams. So I've been coming in and saying, right, what's what's the word of the week? And they're all able to tell what the words of the week So they all know how to say good morning, good afternoon already. So people are taking note. And this is so important because, do you know, in Somerset alone, we've got 7,553 people with a learning disability over the age of 18. Now, that data comes from the Somerset surveillance information. That was taken in 2020. So we'll have even more now. So if we're going to be able to improve health outcomes and reduce inequalities of health, we've got to really look at how we as a system communicate and open those potential communication channels up. So that's what Lily is doing, which is amazing. Yeah. And I think the wider point you're making is that people with learning disabilities are often able to do much more than than they be expected to and that it's up to us to make the effort rather than just make assumptions on their behalf is that right absolutely yes absolutely yeah and we find often as well that that people with learning disabilities even if they don't use signing themselves they often um, understand signing and and a lot of the signs are very kind of self-explanatory so they just aid communication it's it's not it's not a kind of you know secret language that is very difficult to access um, but a, a lot of our patients would benefit from signing even if they don't sort of formally use signing mm. themselves they they often quite understand quite a lot of signing mm. Sonia, you, you mentioned health inequalities and there's shocking statistics, isn't there, about how much younger people with LD die than the general population. Do you want to say a little bit about that and some of the things we're doing to try and address that? Yeah, sure. So what we know is there's high rates of um, inequality in terms of interventions and accessing screening treatments etc uh, i think that, that someone with a learning disability dies around 20 years earlier than the general population and also 50 percent of deaths of those amongst those with learning disability are preventable and treatable which is really really concerning and the other added issue is some of the learning disability I can't say now i need to put my teeth back in mm-hmm. um is a higher risk of developing dementia a third more likely to have epilepsy. They are also a third more likely to have an associated physical disability. So really complex. And we're part of a project which is brilliant here in Somerset. It's pretty new and it's looking at vulnerable people, including those with a learning disability who are sat on waiting lists. So we're looking at expediting appointments for outpatient clinics, for those that learn disability, to move them up the waiting list ever slightly so that they're not sat on the waiting list 
getting worse, deteriorating, and their health outcomes just becoming even more of a challenge. You've taken us, thank you so much, Sonia and Louise, you've taken us on a, a great a tour around what you're managing to achieve in Somerset, and that's absolutely great. I've got a question which is, how often do you see somebody who's got an identified learning disability, or, or maybe it's a new one, and you're the first person to actually spot something else as well? That might be a vision problem, or it might be a hearing problem, or a hearing problem could be deafness due to just due to earwax, let alone. So how often does that happen, or is that pretty rare? Oh, I think, yeah, it happens quite frequently, with um, particularly with um, our pe- people who are acutely admitted. Um, so, you know, we, we might go up to a ward and see somebody, um, you know, who might be perhaps being treated for an infection. Um, but I think learning disability nurses have a natural, um, I'm going to say curious, curiosity, but probably nosiness is a better word, actually. I think we're all quite nosy and um, we like to dig around and um, it's, it's a bit like investigations sometimes. It's a bit like being a detective and trying to figure out the, the full picture of what you're seeing with somebody. Um, we know that we have a lot of patients who have a number of comorbidities, um, for example, like Sonia said, epilepsy, um, you know, dysphagia, issues with eating and drinking, um, higher rates of infection for various different reasons, issues with mobility, um, osteoporosis, all sorts of um, different comorbidities. And then on top of that, um, we also see people who have particular syndromes who have a number of different specialisms involved in their treatment due to that syndrome in particular. Um, so it's it's very common that we'll we'll go up to a ward and possibly be able to join some dots which may not have been very obvious um, when the person was acutely admitted with their presentation. So we do things like we look at the, the kind of basics of health, like, you know, is is somebody is somebody's bowels been open? Are they constipated? How are they eating and drinking? Um, what's their fluid intake? Um, is that because, like Sonia said, you know, they, they don't like what they're being given to drink, so therefore they're not drinking it because they lack the capacity to fully understand what will happen if they don't drink enough, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So we look at all those really holistic points. Um, and we try to put together a plan to uh, treat all aspects as, as far as we possibly can and make sure that, you know, if they're in hospital being treated for one particular thing, that doesn't cause an issue with another particular health issue. Um, so, yes, it's um, it's very much about comorbidity. And dysphagia, just to unpack for anyone who's not familiar with the term, is difficulty in swallowing. Um not to be confused with dysphasia, which is difficulty in speech. So we're coming to the end of our time, sadly, but are there any words you would like to leave with us and our listeners, particularly perhaps for people who don't encounter people with learning disabilities very often and aren't quite sure how to approach them? Well, one thing I'd like to say is that someone with a learning disability is very different from the other personal learning disability just because you've got a learning disability it doesn't mean that the challenges the desires etc are the same for everybody everybody's very different and 
it's crucial to get to know them as individuals. And when they're in the hospital setting, house passports, which we haven't spoken about, we could be, could be here for another hour, <laughs> are crucial because that will tell you about that person, what they want to be called, what they like, what they don't like, what's good when they're distressed, what helps. So health passports are a really crucial element. But getting to know them as individuals, would you agree with That's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to say just looking in a person-centred way at every, every different person that you meet, really. This has been the most fascinating fascinating episode and conversation thank you so much for joining us and it's just great to hear all the great work that you're doing thank you very much and thank you everybody for listening so all the best bye bye you've been listening to the somerset emotional well-being podcast hosted by dr andrew Tresider and dr peter bagshaw the show was created by david seeley and was produced by rob hunt's music on behalf of the somerset clinical commissioning group 